National Fishermen and Pacific Marine Expo are proud supporters of the Galley Stories podcast, as we make similar efforts to highlight the people and topics that define commercial fishing. You can see what that looks like in print and online all year long, as well as every November in Seattle when this community comes together at PME. Check out nationalfisherman.com and pacificmarineexpo.com to learn more. Hey guys, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to thank National Fisherman Magazine and the Pacific Marine Expo for uh, the partnership that we've been enjoying and appreciation for the uh, invitation and the booth to attend this event this year. Additionally, I got a lot of questions during the first day of Expo this year about how to support Galley Stories as we do not have sponsorships. The answer to that would be patreon.com forward slash Galley Stories. I'll put a link to it on uh, this episode. With that being said, uh, I would like to thank previous supporters that have really helped us get to where we are. Aldo Castillo, Daniel Hart, the late great Daniel Hart, Shyler Moe, Derek Hart, Emily, AKA Lady, and Jesse Honor. And a special thanks to Garrett Riley from Spit and Llama, as he's done all of my signage since we began this process and journey with Galley Stories. So again, uh, thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us, uh, please become a Patreon. Uh, there will be no special episodes released for that. There's going to be no gain or insight. It would be strictly to support the podcast. And with that, thanks for your generosity. And thanks for listening. And here we go. Hello, and welcome to Galley Stories. Stories of the Bering Sea and beyond. Hosted by Mark Kaler. My name is Penka Jane, podcast deckhand and longtime listener. We'd thank you to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Here's today's catch. Hello, guys, and welcome to another installment of Galley Stories, Stories of Bering Sea and Beyond. I'm your host, Mark Kaler. Today we're down at the Pacific Marine Expo um, with Landon Cheney of uh, the Summer Bay. Uh, shooting it live a little bit. He wants to get it going, though, because he, uh, he doesn't want a lot of people around. So um, let's just dive right into it. Landon, where were you born and what got you into, into commercial fishing? I was born in San Jose, California uh, in 1988. And... I'm a third generation fisherman. My uh, grandpa on my dad's side and my dad and all of his brothers were fishermen out of Moss Landing, California. Um, and, you know, when I, I'd heard all the stories growing up of what it was like, you know, I remember uh, my dad and uncle saying like, you know, they were the ones at school with all the brand new trucks and stuff because they, like, they had been commercial fishing since they were 13 years old. You know, they popped out on draggers and trawlers and uh you know a number of different fisheries and you know I, I never that isn't really what sparked my interest in fishing um basically the reason why i started was because after high school i just never really had a plan i wasn't really sure if i wanted to go to college put myself in debt and my dad just said you know i'm, I'm going to take you up to the docks at the fisherman's terminal in seattle I want you to make a bunch of resumes up and you know have your picture on it and what your your statement of intent is and you know let them know like that you're third generation and so I dropped a bunch off um, because I just didn't have a plan I didn't really know what I wanted to do but I knew I wanted to make you know good money and I didn't want to be a nine to five so you know I got that that day I got three different job offers and I got on my first boat. At that time, I basically that day hopped on there, moved on the boat, and it was called the Polar Lady owned by the Stewarts, and that was a, a seven-month grind that I did, you know, tendering to cod to king crab my first go-around. 
Now, uh, how was that? Now, prior to that, even though you're a third generation fisherman, did you spend any time with your dad on boats? Um, yeah, or is yeah. This, okay, so Absolutely. what, what so, was that? You know, what was your first experience? Yeah, uh, so I think like my very first experience was the only time that I ever got seasick. I was like six years old, and we went out on like a 32 foot sport fishing boat out of Santa Cruz, California, and uh, you know I. I threw my guts up, and the next day when they all went out, I, didn't, I said I didn't want to go, but he made me go anyways. And then uh, I wasn't sick ever again after that. And we were just, we were doing the, uh, like, mooching is what they call it for salmon down there, Monterey Bay. Um, there used to be a, a pretty active fishery down there. A lot has changed down there. But um, uh, ever since then, when I started, he, my dad noticed I really liked it. He started taking me on fishing trips to Alaska. We, li we lived in, you know, have lived in Washington my whole life, and he started taking me on fishing trips to Alaska. And what my vacation was like, and I think this is partly why I was so prepared to be in this high energy, lack of sleep uh, industry, is, you know, when I would go up there with him, we would go up there for two weeks, and we would get up at three in the morning at the lodge that we would stay at. Um, we would have the boat packed up, lunches packed up, and we'd be out on the water by 3.45, 4 a.m. every day. We'd go out there and we would, you know, whether we'd limit at that time, come in, bring our fish in, you know, and then go fish the rivers. We wouldn't get back until 11 o'clock at night and then have dinner. And so, you know, I'm up there for two weeks and that's what my vacation was like when I was a kid with my dad. And that's what was fun for him. And, you know, I was, it was, it got some getting used to, but I actually absolutely loved it. Like it became a passion of mine, just like it was for him. And so the uh you know all of the uh naysayers you know when i first got on the polar lady you know the crew members you know you know we'll see how you how you do how you last i'd already been brought up in that kind of mentality by my dad you know he was like already commercial fisherman and he brought the commercial fishing mentality to sport fishing so uh obviously i'm not going to say it was easy it definitely wasn't like you know i was a hundred, uh, six foot one, 155 pounds soaking wet, like just a, a kid, you know, like people say I look young now, but I just looked like a boy up there amongst men. And it, it took some getting used to, but like, I, I was brought in the old school way by a lot of guys, like, you know, versus the, uh, I think a, a lot more of people that are brought into that fishery now is, are brought in a little bit softer, but I was brought in like really hard, really fast. And I think that's part of the reason why I've lasted so long in it. So let's hear about that experience from the first day on that boat. Yeah, I imagine you started tendering first. Yeah. So kind of slower break-in, right, with tendering? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the, the tendering <laughs> gig that we did was through Alaska General Seafoods, uh, Ketchikan, Alaska. And that was more like a family operation. So it was Gary Stewart and his wife, Evie, um, and their son, Chell Stewart, who was actually my crab captain, cod captain, for those couple of years I was on there up in Dutch Harbor. He was there and a couple other crew members. And that was more like sunshine, calm weather, on the inside, totally beautiful, you know. We're like, doing I can do this forever. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, oh, this is commercial, this is great, you know. Um, and we had, we'd take the skiff out, you know, we're setting shrimp pots every day. We're halibut fishing while we're waiting for boats to come so that we can pump them off. It, it was, it was like, it was like the sport fishing I did with my dad, but it was like, like more of a vacation than anything, and I was getting paid for it. I started out $100 a day when I was 19 on that boat. And um, I, to me, you know, that stacking up and me just being able to do what I was having fun doing was like, that was a lot of money. I was like, oh my gosh, this is great, you know. And everybody on the boat, like I said, 
super family oriented deal. But the transition, um, when it was time to go from tendering and time to go cod fishing, my very first cod season was all the way up in St. Matthew's Island. And at, there was a bunch of, there was a couple of young guys on the boat, like 23 and 27, me being 19 at the time. And then there was like one old timer that was kind of like our hydro guy, chief engineer. And then uh, the captain, but like the, the young guys, the way they broke me in is like, they're very competitive with each other. And they were brought in super hard the way, it, you know, the way that I was explaining. And they were brought by like, brought up in that old school mentality. So uh, they, they constantly would tell me, you're never gonna make it. You're never gonna make it. You suck. You're, you're the worst deckhand ever. All, every day, every single day. And I just, I was just, I took the advice from uh, many people that were in the industry already and they just said, hey, just put your head down and keep your mouth shut. Like you may not agree with what what the people above you say, but like just do your job, and you're gonna make a lot of mistakes. But just try to be better every single day. And eventually, after about two weeks of that, it worked enough to where I, I could do my end of the job, and and then I saw I saw those guys that start to bicker with each other because they're like, oh, he's doing his job now, um, you know. But I, I think like the real like victory for me in that first season like they'll never tell you you're doing an awesome job like the those old school guys will never tell you oh you're doing a great job you're, you're doing a great job but they they use a, a different route to motivate you but the biggest victory for me when I knew that I had done a good job was you know we were sitting in the Grand Illusion Hotel and the, one of their friends came up and he said hey there's a there's a greenhorn looking for a spot right now if you guys need one. And they looked at each other and they said, I think we like our horn. And I was like, and it was just like the best feeling, yeah. you know? That was like after getting brutalized and, and, you know, I mean, I'm saying like if I if I was pulling buoys in and, and I wasn't pulling them fast enough, they would take the buoy and swing it like a bat at my face. Bloody noses, like like it was, it was, it was rough sometimes, you know? And like, let, let alone the hands hurting, the body aching and, and not really, knowing the program of, you know, changing gloves, changing gear and all that, just uncomfortable, miserable, tired all the time. But that was like the big victory for me. And I just always continued to motivate myself mentally with, you know, your grandpa, your dad, your uncles, they're all like counting on you to do this. Like I, I, it, I really had to do it for them before I did it for me. But after that moment, when I, I got that positive reinforcement, I was like, I'm gonna do this for me now. And that was on land. They didn't give it to you on the boat. Uh, they did that to me while we were out fishing. You know, that was all that brutal, yeah. that brutal stuff. Yeah, you know, it's just, just, but like that's the just com the compliment came back. Oh, on the comp land. yeah, the compliment came at, on land. Yeah, when we we're actually sitting down, like after that, that cod season. And I, I always tell everybody this, like, and and you know, I might it might be like a, it might not be correct. It might be just saying this because this is that was my very first season. And I think for everybody, their first season is going to be the hardest. But I, I like to this day wonder if that is probably one of the hardest seasons like that I ever did, and it happened to be my first season. Like I still think that because you know we were way up. You know, St. Matthews is way up north there. It's not too far from the Russian border, and there was no town to go to for for 30, 35 days. We were just delivering to this processor that was like a floater about an hour and a half, two hours away from where we fished. So, so there was no heel up time. Like when I fished cod after that, um, we would 
be delivering to Dutch Harbor, so and we would be running, you know, eight to twelve hours from the ground. So like you would have all this extra sleeping time to heal up after every like two and a half, three day trip. And like we didn't have that my very first time. Like it was a really tough break in. And I totally understood like when they were telling me, yeah, you're you're not you're not gonna make it. Like ninety five percent of greenhorns don't make it. Like I hundred percent believe that. Like and, and I mean and then it became it confirmed after all the years that I had been on different boats after that and I saw new guys come on and just couldn't hang. You know? So that was that was the cod season. What about moving into crab? When we went into crab, I I, I would say like the bait aspect is a little bit heavier. So like for cod, you just, two, you, you just fill up two bags full of herring. But for crab, you have a bay bag, a jar, and then you have to hang a bunch of fish, which it's heavier. And they say, yeah, it's harder. But there was so much more time you you have a sh you know depending on how much gear and quota you have like there's there's more runs and stuff and like i remember looking to them and wanting to say to the crew like this is so much easier than what we just did but you know how d dare i say anything like that they make me go outside and scrub the boat while everybody's sleeping you know yep. and humble me really quick but uh now that's the, I, that's what i thought i thought i thought that you know, cod was just way harder. I still think it today. Um, the cod season that I just finished up with, was it's just a, it's a young man's game, you know. Um, that's why, like, when I, I hire for cod, I make sure everybody's, you know, my age or, or younger. Like, I, I, I haven't seen too many old guys. There's a, there's a few still up there in the industry that, you know, stand in on trips. And, you know, I saved the old guy that we hired for, after we finished COD when we went into King Crab and Baradai because, you know, they have a lot of knowledge, but like just it, physically, it is it is so brutal. Um, and it's such a great warm up too before a crab season. You know, you do a quick COD season and then you do your crab after that. And you're, you know, crab's really challenging and it, it can be tough if it takes, you know, days, weeks to find them. And that's like more of the mental game. And, you know, I, I do agree that, you know, you have to be as mentally tough if not more than physically to do the job but uh, yeah no like it's it's uh this this crab thing is is isn't i'm not saying like don't get me wrong crab's a difficult thing but yeah that's I, i'm just glad that my breaking was like you know with the cod season because if i would have been broken in crab and then tried cod after that i i might have failed you know tough yeah so really two tough. years on that boat yeah i was on the pole lady for two years and then uh they stopped fishing. Uh, they started leasing their quota out. They just tender strictly now ever since. And so I didn't have a gig after that. And I spent all the money I had from just doing little odd jobs at home after they, I heard that they had leased their quota out. I spent all the money I had on a trip to Dutch Harbor, a plane flight, and I was going to walk the docks because I had been on the boat and I'd seen guys walking around and I had you know ran into them later oh yeah I got a job on this boat yeah and there was a lot more boats fishing back then not like there were in the derby days you know before my time but there were still like quite a few boats in town and I knew that I could probably land something and so when I flew up I had no place to stay I didn't have the money to stay anywhere and I knew where the polar lady van was so I slept in the van in September walking the docks everywhere and then I finally got this job on the boat a boat called the Andronica, and it's not exactly like the Cadillac of the fleet up there, but to me, after walking around for 10 days, um, feet hurting, sore, and talking and getting no, 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 over and over again, that was like my Cadillac. I was just like, 
I have a place to stay now. I have food that I can eat, and um, you know, I I started fishing uh, long lining black cod on there. So, so the first time you walked the docks in Seattle, yep. your dad had you prep up resumes with yep. photos. Yeah. Did you do that in Dutch, or were you just walking it? I was just walking it, man. Like uh, it, it, I was just a way more uh, like freestyle kind of thing. Uh, and it was, well, and you had some experience then too. I did, I did, and that was that was helpful. And you know, I, I think like, you know, going out on the limb and saying, taking whatever I could get was really important. So, I knew that even though I had two years experience, those two years I was always working with full share guys. So I knew that I wasn't a full share guy yet. I knew that I was, if anything, a really good half share not even quite a three-quarter shirt because I kind of just stayed in my job and I picked up a few things like knots and you know but um, a lot of those guys like wanted to do their position and wanted to do what they did and kind of what we did is everybody did the same job every season you know there wasn't a, a full rotation especially that second year I was on that boat so you know going up to boats you know eventually all those these boats I was looking for jobs that they they knew me by name what's up Landon you find anything yet <laughs> I'm like nope there's you still sleeping in the van yep <laughs> um, but you know what my lead with was with that was hey look I've got two years experience I don't know a ton I'm super teachable but I will take half share like as if I know nothing and eventually that worked and, uh, and, I, and I got a, a, a spot on a boat that I stayed with for two years and then what so that's the Andronica? Andronica. And yeah. so well, how was that experience? Uh, I was, uh, it was, it was great. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't just like cool because I, I was learning some new fisheries, but it was cool. I was the only gringo on the boat. It was a, a boat owned by uh, this Mexican family called the Castillos, and they they like brought me in like I was one of their own. Um, you know, I, uh, even when I wasn't up fishing in Alaska, like they invited me down into their home down in. Uh, Corvallis, Oregon. I stayed with them on their ranch. We would do gear work down there for the du upcoming Dungeness season together. So I got to I got to participate in um, probably my favorite fishery I've ever done that I made the least amount of money ever in was Dungeness in Unimac Island. The Dungeness crab are huge there, but it was it, you would, it was cool because you would set a pot there, and in the same pot you'd get king crab, bear die, Dungeness. Uh, you know you'd see just all these uh, hair crab, all these different species of crab. And you know we would we would be able to use the open access fishery, so we're able to like eat a lot of the stuff we catch too. You know, so we eat ceviche every day. It was just it was like you know work 12 hours a day, haul a bunch of pots, anchor up. Uh, I mean, it was it was a really really fun experience, and and I knew like a couple months into it that it wasn't the year to make money. I could tell that like it wasn't going to be a big schooled up crab year for us, but I just like soaked up everything that I could and learned everything that I could and, and just put my head down tried to remain humble um, but um, the way that I got my next job was because our captain on there said hey like we're not really catching a lot you guys are more than welcome to bring crab to friends in town and whatnot and every time we pull into Westford almost every time I would see the boat the Scandies Rose parked there and I would look at that boat, and I was just in awe of that boat. It was just a beautiful boat, so beautiful. And like they said, it was like you know, it was a tank. You know, the thing was, it was built stout, uh, beautiful paint job. It's just, it. I loved everything about that boat. That was like my favorite boat. And I would be bringing them two five-gallon buckets of Dungeness crab every time we came into town. And uh, the first time I went up there, I saw Dan Matson and Gary Cobbins sitting in the wheelhouse, and. They were like, yeah, you know, can we help you? And I said, hey, 
Um, I work on the Andronica, and I just really admire your boat, and I just wanted to leave this here. And I never, I never asked for a job until about the third time that I did it. Third time I did it, I went up there and I said, okay, I'm going to be like 100% honest with you guys. Like, I've had a really tough year here. I've done three months of gear work, and we've been up here for five months, and I haven't really made much money. It's just been a really tough year, and I want to work on this boat. Like, this, the, your boat is everything that I've ever wanted. I'll take half share. I have experience on this other boat very teachable. I don't know a lot, but I'm really a hard worker, um, and I'll do what I'm told. And um, You know, Dan and Gary looked at each other and said, why don't you write your phone number down there? And right after I got home from that season um, in November, I got a phone call and they said, if you want the job, you're hired. You're going to come over fishing with us. And I was just, it was just like the weight lifted off of my shoulders, you know, financial, you know, and, and you know, the pride thing of being able to work on a really nice boat. I was just so excited. So yeah, that's how I got my foot in the door with Gary and um, you know, started that friendship relationship. Um, and I went on there, it was a totally different ball game. It was a, you know, a different kind of professional operation. And we had 1.9 million pounds of Opelio to catch the first time I went on there. And, we caught it in seven weeks, and we were on a 700 per pot average. Like I'd never seen anything like it. I got Gary's a really, really talented captain, and uh, and and the crew right away. You know they liked me. Everybody you know treated me really well. The living conditions, the living course, it was just like the perfect situation. You know, um, and I worked on there for two more years. You know, two years and. Um, Eventually, I got fired. <laughs> oh, was, let's, let's hear that one. Yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, uh, I think uh, two years after that season, I was uh, doing shipyard in Seattle, and uh, you know, in my young and dumb days, uh, you know, partying way too much, drinking, you know, even a bit of drugging back then. Um, they just like, you know, they told me they gave me they came to me so many times and told me like, hey man, you're, you're a talented guy and you have a lot of potential, but like, you know, you got to stop doing this, you know, and, um, you know, you represent this boat. And they were pretty strict about that. And um, they had had other deckhands that had similar issues, and they had fired them and let them go, and they made an example out of them for me and anybody else. And I just didn't listen, and uh, and they let me go. Like, you know, I was I, I remember just being completely, uh, you know, devastated, but, like, it was totally my own doing. Um, yeah, and, and, and talking on the phone with Dan and going and meeting him for my last check, he was just, he was so sad to see see me go and see me doing that, you know. And I remember that in that time, I, was, I, I thought maybe I'd take a break from fishing and kind of like get centered, you know, think about, you know, the choices I had, choices I had made. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was, uh, I worked at a, a as a door guy at a bar for a little bit. I worked in sales, doing selling TV service for a while. And a year and a half went by and I just, I missed the ocean, man. I just, I missed, I missed it so much. I missed the camaraderie, it's just unmatched on a boat. There's, there's nothing like it, it's just, you know, I would imagine that it's like, you know, being in the military and, and being, you know, with fellow soldiers, like you're going out there and it feels like you're going to war, like beginning, at the beginning of a season sometimes. and. Uh, yeah, it, it uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was, like I said, devastating. But I, I bounced back. I, uh, I actually called Dan and 
asked him if uh, he had anything available, and I was trying to, you know, get things, get my get my shit together a little bit. And uh, he owned him and Gary owned another boat, the New Venture. So I got on there and I, and I worked for two more years. It was like it was like two, two years rule of time. two, two yeah. years, two years, two years. Yeah, until the boat I'm on now that changed, but. Uh, yeah, I worked on there for two years, and uh, I learned a lot from Petey. He was my deck boss on the Scandies Rose. He taught me so much. Uh, quirky guy, just like he's like a, my little big brother. He's about this tall, but he's just like my big brother. You know, he's <laughs> just a great guy, uh, and I still have a really good relationship. And we talk all the time. But um, you know, like cod, there was a, like a, almost like a, a like. I guess they would call it in salmon, like run failure. There was almost something like that that happened in Kodiak. I think it was in 2016. And I, uh, uh, three trips in, I was making about $100 every three days on these trips. And the work is extremely hard. Um, you know, like the way you roll gear out in Kodiak for cod, it's, it's, like I said, young man's game. A lot of work, really hard. And uh, I got to a point where I just said it. I can't do this again. Like, I know he was struggling. Everybody was struggling. Every boat out there was struggling. Nobody was catching anything. I said, I can't do this anymore. And that's, that moment is what, if I wouldn't have quit, if I would have toughed it out, then I wouldn't have gotten the job on Saturday. And in that moment, <coughs> I hopped off and I started calling people that I knew in the industry and I called Chell Stewart who was my first captain, uh, first pot fishing captain on the Polar Lady, and I just said, hey man, I need something. Explain my situation, and he just said, yeah, there's this guy, Bill, that just bought this boat, the Wasili B, and he needs a guy. Didn't know who Bill was, never heard of the Wasili B before, and uh, it's like, here's his number. So I gave Bill a call, and uh, you know, I said, hey, I'm landing, heard you need a guy, and he starts talking for a little bit, and I realize who I'm talking to partway through. I'm like, I'm, you know, stayed away, and my jaws dropped. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm talking to Wild Bill right now. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, we, we don't have a, you know, we have an okay amount of quota. It's not a big quota. Uh, it keeps going down. And um, he started talking about money. He said, like, but if you do a good job, I, I, I like to give everybody a little bit of a bonus for um, you know their effort and their ability to follow the directions uh, based off of the TV thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like I, I didn't know what to say, but I was like, yep, yep, a a anything you want, sir. You know, it's just yes, sir, yes, sir. I'd heard he was like an ex-Navy guy, so it's just yes, sir, yes, sir. Um, so yeah, the the a really funny story about how I first stepped foot on that boat. Uh, it was obviously Nick McGlashan, who you've had on here before. Um, he was standing in the doorway of the mudroom on the summer bay when I got dropped off there. I flew in, got dropped off there. And I didn't really put two and two together that he was going to be with Bill, but I had, I had known that before. But right when I saw him, I was like, like, oh, no. Because I had heard about how he was, like, you know, an aggressive really good deckhand but like very aggressive had really high standards and like the first thing that goes to me is like oh, sh oh shoot like i hope i can cut it with this guy because this guy is like no joke and I, and I think a lot of deckhands have come and gone working under him because like he's got a standard that 
not a lot of people can reach, but like I totally respected that, right? The other reason why I was a little nervous was because I used to date his sister. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so I'm thinking instantly, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm going to be on TV with this guy. And I dated his sister. Like, he is going to make a mockery of me. Um, I, I, I didn't say anything about it. Nothing was said about it for the first few days. And then once we got all the pots on the boat, the new pots that the boat had purchased, we are heading out of the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And, you know, you just no longer see land. It was going to be like days until we got to land. So we're all stuck with each other. It's like official. Like there's no getting off the boat. Yep. <laughs> and we're I, locked in now. Yeah, we're locked in. And uh, I get out of my bunk after a nap. And, and uh, he says very sternly and doesn't look happy at all. And the rest of the crew is sitting at the galley table saying, Hey, Landon, didn't you used to date my sister? Like, I was like, oh, no. Here and, it goes. <laughs> yeah, that was just, here we go. And, you know, no, nothing, then, no, you know, like, I, regardless of the cameras, they weren't there yet, but, like, I was just like, okay, here, this is the beginning of something really rough for me, and, and I'm either going to come out, like, looking terrible, or I, I don't know. I can't imagine anything better than that. But I just said, hey, man, like, I really, really liked her. I introduced her to my family. I brought her to my house. Like she knows my dad. She knew my dad. And he said, "What? She's crazy. You're crazy. What the heck? She met your parents?" And he like laughed it off and went upstairs and told Bill. I guess Bill knew his sister too. And at the time, like she was a wild one. She's like totally, you know, chilled out now. But. At the time, she was a wild one, and, and he told Bill, he's like, dude, Landon used to date Melissa. And he, uh, and Bill was like, oh, my gosh. Like, they were all worried about me. They are like, this guy is a wild card now. Like, we, we know nothing about him. We just know it from the word of this, this guy that referred him. But, like, we know nothing about, like, you know, what he can do, and this is, this is what we have to go off of. Um, oh, my gosh. Like, they're, they're freaking out. So, anyways, uh, you know, I, one thing I, you know, before we the, the work really started it was it was time to you know show what I could do and we went we had to go set all of that gear in the gear storage and I just continued to remain humble I never like I it's a very common thing in the industry up there there's a lot of ego like a ton of it and everybody's always bragging about how good they are how good they are how good they, like they're the best deckhand ever I'm the best at the rail I'm the best at this I'm the best at that and I never wanted to be that I got warned uh you know my first year by different guys I worked with like don't ever be that guy because that is that is evidence of being a bad deckhand is bragging about how good you are and uh, so I just never said anything I never said what I could do I just wanted to show them what I could do and uh, you know when we set all that gear uh, they put me on the stack and after we were done setting it they were like why didn't you say anything you know I didn't realize you knew what you were doing and and I said I you know there's a million guys better than me I'm just here to be a part of the team and I'm just here to learn from you Nick and like in that moment like it was pretty obvious like I kind of became like his right-hand guy on the boat uh, and uh, and like his respect for me it, that's that's kind of where it started to blossom and, and like you know only growing from there everything that he all the old things that I used to do the old ways he was like you're gonna not do it that way you're gonna do it this way and I was like okay and he wasn't used to that he was used to guys coming on the boat and be like no no I'm, I do I do it this way and I was just like okay even if I thought it was 
you know, harder for me to figure out how to do the way that he was showing me. It was the way he did it, so it was the way I was going to do it. And he finally had a guy like that that he could mold into the deckhand that he wanted, you know, and do it the way he did it. So, um, yeah, that, that was that was like that was the beginning of of that was like the very first season. And and you know what was really tough is uh, you know as I'm finally get this like amazing mentor like him like that is like he's he was up there fishing since he was 11 years old first year he went on his dad's boat bruce's boat the westling he was 11 years old filling bait jars up like i mean he was when he was a little kid he was playing in pot yards for fun like it was his jungle gym that's all he ever wanted to do and it was really it really pained me to see him um fall so hard uh in that first season because that very first season i worked with him he got fired off the boat and it was you know, for substance abuse, and and I didn't, I, I you know, it being my first season, I'd never experienced it, but it, Bill had already experienced it with him for you know many years before that, and and he just kind of lost his patience at that time, and he kicked him off. So we went we went back out for our, our final trip, and and no Nick on the boat, and it was just me, two other really young guys, and an old timer on the hydros, just four man in it without the star of the show. You know, like he was. He was, you know, he was the our, our best player, you know, like it's like a, it's a sports team and he was our best guy and he wasn't there, but, you know, um, I, after that season, I, I was still, I still hadn't had enough with my partying and, and then I had heard while I was out partying at home, I heard that he had cleaned up his act, gone to rehab and totally changed, you know, his the way he lived his life he's re he's reaching out to me texting me he's like hey let me come see you and i'm like no 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 right now i don't know it's not a good idea right now you know he's like it's okay man i'm not, I'm not gonna judge you dude like i just, just want to be there for you no i'm okay and then <clears throat> we all flew up there and i was obviously not 100 percent and there he was like he was like looking at a totally different person man. it's like just this glow that he had about him and uh I remember that was my first winter season fishing with him, and I just remember saying to him, sitting in the forepeak, like, hey, I want what you have, bro. Like, you've got this, you've got just this shine to you now. And he's like, all right, let's, let's do this, let's dive in. And, um, you know, uh, we went on through that season. He was there, like, supportive of me, not just as a deck boss, but as a friend and uh, helped me, uh, showed me a kind of a, way, a better way to live life. And we, and we got a place together in Seattle. We lived together after that. Uh, we did everything together and became best friends pretty much instantly within that, those uh, few months, you know, in the fall and the winter. And uh, we, we worked for his dad on the SBS provider, uh, did a little tendering contract together on there, had a blast together. Um, yeah, it was, it's a... Uh, Gosh, that that was just the very beginning. That's my first year. So much happened in that first year on the Summer Bay, you know. What about the next year? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, the next year is like, um, I think that, like, it was really just trying to, I was, I was doing everything that, all the jobs that I could do. And I was trying to just learn the basics. And then the next year, it was, there was like the, uh, I would say, you know, like it, I started looking at fishing more like a sport. I, I, I started having fun with it. 
I started to learn how to be out there and instead of being miserable, I learned how to like laugh and have fun with my buddies and crew members. Uh, you know, telling jokes in between pots, like just just being goofy and stuff like that instead of like, I can't wait until this is over, right? <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, this is hell for me. I just want to get this over with, put the boat away and get my check and go home. It, it didn't turn into that. Like, I, I think I like looked forward to it more because I knew I had uh, good friends, you know, especially in Nick. And, and then like, I just wanted, it's like people would always talk about like Michael Jordan, like how they wanted to be like Mike, you know? And to me, Nick was like the Michael Jordan, oh no, crab boat. I wanted to be like Nick, you know? So everything that he was, the way he would throw the hook, the way he worked, the way he did everything, I just wanted to do it the way he did it, you know? He, he had all these fancy ways of, you know, throwing shots over the side of the boat, all these crazy shots that he would do and, and like, he starts, he's, he would be like laughing, not like at me, but he'd start laughing, like smiling, like the way when he would see me trying to do things just the way he did, he's like, and it made him really happy, you know, like he, he, he could see the respect that I had for him. So, you know, I, uh, I remember at that end of that first year, Bill looks at me, this was a big shocker right before the second year. He's like, you're going to tender this boat and you're going to become my new engineer. Tim's getting old. And he's not going to be in this much longer. He's going to retire. You're going to be my engineer. I was like, Bill, I've never even worked on a car before. Like, I don't even know how engines work. He's like, you're going to learn. Just sternly. Like, he was, he was like, don't give me that shit. <laughs> like, you're going to learn. You're going to be my engineer. You're going to be a good engineer, too. And and uh, so I, we had a different summer captain. And so I was the only one out of the crab crew that stayed in the summer for four years. And... I had that captain, he taught me a lot, learned the engine room, and then like when I would come back up and I became engineer during the crab season, cod season, whatever, uh, I would share what I had learned from him and then Bill would like fine tune it a little bit. He's like, yeah, that's that's fine, but I want you to do it this way. And you know, and slowly but surely, like now I know that engine room better than anybody on this planet. And like I had zero understanding of how engines work I really still to be honest don't really know the theory behind them but like if something breaks on an engine I can or something is is acting a certain way um, you know hopefully I've done enough preventative maintenance on it to where it doesn't happen uh, but you know I can I can pretty much fix anything in that engine room and if I can't I can always talk to Bill and, and he he can sit in the chair and fix it from the chair use me as his his third arm you know what I mean um, but yeah, that was, that was like a tough one because, you know, I was wanting to go do the fall season, winter season, and then come home to the family. Um, it's a big sacrifice being a fisherman and being away from your family that long. Um, people, a lot of people, just, like, they don't realize it. And, you know, I think there's a lot more respect for like people when they join the military, like, oh, it's, it's you know, for this cause, but like, then we're, we're all in the same same boat we're all trying to do the same thing and accomplish the same goal and that's provide for our family you know so i uh i spent i would spend you know time in shipyard in homer alaska where our boats uh based out of time from may and then you know take off in june from there and then start our contract in june all the way uh until the beginning of september and we weren't fishing cod yet at that time on the summer base so i'd be able to go home and for like three weeks in September and then I'd have to fly right back up and be gone for another two months October and November 
you know, spent many Thanksgivings. I've never, I've actually never, uh, since I started fishing, I haven't spent Halloween at, at home before. Like, I've always been gone October 31st for King Crab, Baradive. And, uh, you know, that's a big, uh, there's just a, a sacrifice away from the family. But, uh, and that, for so many years, my family has said to me, like, when are you going to stop fishing? When are you going to stop doing this? Like, when are you going to find a different job? But, like, I think uh, now we're kind of at the point, me and my family, they have this understanding that I'm doing what I love. And there's a lot of people that travel for work, you know, and it is really hard to walk away from something that I don't, I would never say that it's something that I'm good at, but something that I love and something that I have a, a, a good understanding of. Always, always room for me to improve and there's always new things to learn every single day in the industry. So I don't know everything bar, no, and no, well, never will, you know, um, but I think my family's a lot more accepting, you know, and like all my loved ones are, are pretty supportive of where I'm at now and how far I've come, you know, especially since I'm not coming home and, you know, blowing all my check on, you know, going partying and stuff like that. Now it's like, like it's about, you know, it's about my, you know, raising my daughters, providing for her, um, my girlfriend and, and, you know, my siblings and my nieces and nephews. I'm, I'm just always there now. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I think like, then the, the second year that I was on the boat, I, I'd say was the first like really scary moment that I ever had fishing. Oh, it's just about to go into that. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a, a Spencer Moore. His dad ran the Rogue for years, uh, Shane Moore. And Spencer, like, Bill's known Spencer since he was a baby. He's held him like when he was just born. Bill's really good friends with his dad. And he, he got hired on to the boat uh, as deckhand, and, and you know, we, me and him, you know, kind of same level. He had done about the same kind of experience that I had done. Really good buddy of mine. I actually just ran in, up, ran into him up in Dutch Harbor. He's on the Polar Sea now, but he went overboard uh, during the winter season, during the biggest tides of the year, and uh, you know, it it was uh, it was seeing his. Uh, seeing him flip over the rail and his feet go down into the water at night biggest tide of the year in the winter it's just like it was it was like as scary as it could be without there being a lot of weather luckily there was the weather wasn't really bad but um it was it was pretty pretty cool because one of the things that nick was always so good with was he was always good at teaching us our all of our positions and and going through safety training before every season giving everybody their jobs and when Spencer went over it was like it was like it was like a like a you know like the inside of a clock everything working perfectly as it should it was like everybody went to their exact position that they were supposed to go to and he was in the water for only 90 seconds Bill put it in full reverse and me and Ronnie went and got the life ring we tossed it out to him you know we had the spotter Nick went to the crane lowered the crane strap down so he could put his foot in it we had the painters line pulling him in he was only in the water for 90 seconds. Like when we got him on board, he still had dry spots on his sweatshirt. He wasn't fully wet yet because we got him on so quickly. That was all on camera, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, yeah. It was all on camera, and uh, it, funny enough, there was there's normally a, a deck producer out out on deck, and and there was nobody really out on deck at that time. Uh, we were hauling a cod string for a bait, and uh, so the the deck the deck. Uh, cameras picked it all up 
that were that were running and uh, but yeah it was it was it was once we got him on board and I, and I was I was leaning right over his face and holding on to him I like I, I like I just didn't want to even let go and I'm asking him are you okay buddy and he's he he couldn't even speak he was just like looking through me <laughs> like looking right past my eyes and uh, that was like the first uh, that I would say the first like scary moment I had. I would say this, the most scared that I've ever been in. And we'll get to the part when we almost rolled over. But I honestly, there's. I was there. Yeah. I was talking to Bill on the radio. Oh yeah, you yeah. were in St. Paul, weren't you? Yeah. That yeah. That was that was that was very scary. But I would say the scared, the most scared I've ever been up there. Um, and and uh, this will. Oh, I think this will always be the scariest moment is when we were uh, setting the gear in the winter for COD. I think it was 2020, and uh, Bill says, hey, everybody, come inside right now. We need to talk in the galley, and I looked at Nick. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, it's bad. It's really bad. I was like, oh, shit. I didn't know what, what to expect. We sat down, and we got the word that the Scandies rose. had sunk, and uh, first of all, this like that right before that season I got a job offer to go on there and I actually said yes because like at the time there weren't a lot of boats with a good amount of quota quota had been shrinking but they had over a million pounds to catch and I think we had like 160,000 pounds of opilio but the paycheck was going to be really big I even I said yes and then um, you know a couple weeks later Nick talked me into staying and was just like dude we it's not going to be the same without you. Um, so I, I decided to stay. And so when we got this news, I wasn't even thinking about that at first. The first thing I thought of was if a boat that badass and, and that well-built and, like, in my eyes was indestructible, in my mind indestructible, if a boat like that can sink, how are we going to make it on this little boat? Like, the Summer Bay is like a mid, a little medium crab boat. It's not very big. It's 113 feet, and it's not very wide. And the Scanny's Rose was built for the ice. It's over 130 feet long, and it's like a, a really wide, deep draft boat. And so I became scared of the situation that I was in. I was in we were in the same storm that they were in, and I didn't have all the the answers as to why they you know did you know started rolling over I don't know if anybody's ever going to really fully fully know what happened but I ever since then I tell Bill this all the time ever since then there's like a different kind of nerve that hits me about a week before I fly up for a season and it started in that moment and um what I what I've ju just learned to do with it is I've learned to like channel it into being like double triple prepared like for anything like I, I it's it's you know never wanted anything like that to ever happen but like the fear that it put in me you know it it's made me want to be that much better of an engineer um, anything that I can do I, I look at myself as engineers like. And you have to in any position on a boat like that is you have the lives of everybody in your hands. You know, uh, the captain does, engineer does, and then you know, as a deckhand, if something happens, 
then you have to be able to respond and be there as a part of like the, the mission to rescue whoever went overboard or whatever got hurt. <clears throat> so that moment, as absolutely terrible, sad as it was, uh, and I wish for everything in the world that it wouldn't have happened, um, it's, it's, it's turned me into a, a, a whole different kind of deckhand and engineer. Very, very much more aware of safety stuff. Um, I kind of took that safety stuff a lot more for granted. Um, but like after that happened, I like read the entire stability report of our boat. I read both, you know, every book on all of our engines that we have, mains, generators, like front to back multiple times. Uh, looked over the blueprint, blueprints multiple times of our, our boat. Like normally I was just like, I was never taught to do that once I became an engineer, but like it's totally changed the way I, I look at my, my line of work now. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's super sad, but yeah, I, 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 I still, I still keep in contact with that family. Um, you know, Gary, uh, Gary's son, David was on the boat too. I broke him in as a greenhorn when I was on the Scandies Rose, worked with him on the new venture. I had a really good friendship with him. He'd, he'd been over to the Summer Bay as a guest and met Bill when we were in town. And, hey, this is Gary's son. You know, and then, but you know, after that moment of being scared, then it struck me how lucky I am that, um, that my friendship with Nick saved my life. You know, if, uh, if that relationship would have just been professional, I probably would have just still gone over there. But because like there was such a bond there between me and him, we're like brothers. Like, like I said, I wanted to be like him, but like eventually, like we became bros. Like we were just we're family. You know, we did everything together. And, and if it wasn't for that friendship, I I don't know if I would be here today. It's uh, it's it's crazy. I think about I think about that all the time. Um, it was a big loss. Yeah, yeah, it was devastating for the fishing community and, and, and it was devastating for that town, you know, Dutch Harbor, he, he grew up there, went to high school there, everybody knew him in town and anytime we were in port, like his, his, his family invited the whole crew over, like his grandmother Honey was cooking us fish pies and, and, and all kinds of baked goods and, and uh, I, I knew all of his cousins, you know, like his, his cousins, kids call me Uncle Landon. Um, like I, I'm s super close with him to this day. I still bring his mom salmon uh, from the summertime. I bring her any fish that I can get my hands on. She still bakes us pies and stuff. But like that, that family like took me and they call me the other McGlashan. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, just because we were so close. But uh, yeah, it was, it was absolutely devastating. And, and and it's, I think that a lot of families are devastated consistently in the fishing industry because it's not just because of boats sinking and people being lost out there but I think in, in a lot of ways a lot of those these deckhands that are, are passing away from their addiction and whatnot I think they're safer on a boat in the most one of the most dangerous jobs in the world I think they're safer out there on the boat than they are at home in a lot of ways addiction yeah yeah uh, actually to bring that to a point uh, you're you're gonna be episode 81 right mm-hmm and out of those 81 episodes, three have passed away. Wow. Wow. It's, that's, I mean, that just goes to show you, man. And I'm sure they're great guys, too. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, 
and and you don't know accidental. You know, there's no right. There's no real way to tell. Yeah. I think I think in the fishing industry and that's that's like the big question like why is it so rampant up here? I think like as human beings like we tend to just create our own demons and they follow us. And I think like as fishermen like we you know a lot of people start the industry is like might be running from something you know and to get outside of themselves you know and make some money and 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 make money that they can never make at home because they aren't. Like, I'm speaking from experience. I'm not saying that we um, can't make that kind of money at home when we have those habits and, and, and we're not working on ourselves because we're just not dependable for a job like that. And when you go on a boat, though, it's like you're, you live in your place of work. When you get up, there, there's the food. Boom, you got your food. You got somebody cooking food for you. And then, and then boom, you're right on on you're on the water you're on your job and there's nowhere that you can go to go get whatever it is you know alcohol um, substances and stuff like that um, there it you know it's pretty tough to find good guys on boats that can last in town too like a lot of deckhands are lost like just when they go to port it's time to deliver the crab deliver the cod and run to LFS yeah, hey, I gotta go to yeah, I gotta go to Alaska Ship Supply really quick, and you don't see them for three days after that. Seen that before, you know? And then when they come back, it's like, oh my gosh, who is this? You know? So yeah, it's it's uh, we've me being a part of the problem on the Summer Bay before. Like it's it's uh, I've I've been there, and we've seen that happen. That's why we're so strict now. Like we've we've caught people, you know, a few years ago. Um, that had had those nights and come back and, and it was it was pretty obvious what was going on and there's really no second chances with us anymore because and I let everybody know um, you know in the hiring process like hey you might not be somebody that uses drugs or whatever but you know even if you're a drinker like you like when you work on this boat we don't drink in town obviously don't drink on the boat or in the water on the water but like you just are gonna have to wait till the end of the season when you get home if you want to have some beers, because I and I let people know I've I've lost two of my best friends, uh, Malin. He was with us one winter, and um, you know he he got he got injured on the boat and then had to go home. But you know when he was at home in the summer after he was starting to make his um, recovery for his Achilles that he had severed. You know, I, I got the call. Me and Nick actually told me when we were in Bristol Bay. That was three months, three or four months before Nick. And, <clears throat> like, it was crazy because I didn't know Malin that long, but we had uh, we, everybody, like, Nick would always be like, I'm jealous of what you guys got. You guys are, like, best buds, roommates, always giggling in our room, laughing and stuff, telling stories. Just We just hit it off so good and then con continued that relationship even after he got hurt. Like, we... Always oh, stayed in contact, so that was a, a, a huge, a huge one. And then, and then Nick was after that. I remember I was at Matt Bradley's house, and I, hadn't, I hadn't really had my own spot at the time. Like when I hadn't gotten my own place yet, I was still like living with family off and on. I wasn't home very long, so I didn't see the point at the time. Um, wasn't dating anybody. I just didn't want, didn't see the point. So I was staying with Matt like off and on when I would come home, and I got. When Matt was out for a motorcycle ride with Angela, I got the phone call because I kept calling Nick's phone and I wasn't getting any response. Um, 
and then I called the person that I knew that he was with and they said hey are you are you with people that care about you and I knew I knew right there before the phone call even happened and uh, so I had that phone call with her and and then you know I was standing in Matt's garage when I let him know just like in tears and then when Matt got his motorcycle he just was in full tears too because Matt was his uh, Nick's sponsor in uh, 12-step program and Matt's actually still my sponsor and he's like he's like my big brother honestly he's just he, he's family like Angela's Angela's just family too they like have totally taken me under their wing and uh, but yeah no that's that was that was a huge hit for us for so many people you know, it was, uh, it's it's still sometimes hard to believe that it happened because you know, it was such a big part of that deck and you know, I got I work to this day on the deck and I went up to the wheelhouse this season I said man Sometimes, like, I just see a movement out of the corner of my eye, and, like, you know, it's just, like, I feel like, you know, there's somebody with me still, somebody watching over. Um, and he said, I get the same thing. I see, like, something out of the corner of my eye in the wheelhouse, and I feel like he's about to walk up the stairs. And, I, and then, like, it's just that split second, you know, where until your memory kicks in. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's never been, it's never been quite the same. Uh, um, on there, it's, he, he was really good at not just building a friendship, yeah, but but strengthening it. Like he would pass through Seattle, and I just get a text going, "Hey, coming through? Can, yeah, can I see you? You know, like, yeah, just that connection." When, uh, Steph, Steph and I stopped in the Anchorage one night. And he mm -hmm. happened to be there, and he's like, "Let's let's go to dinner." Yeah, you know, and uh, and I had a beer. He had a water. Yeah, you know, um, yep. Just he was really good at those little connections or just reaching yeah. out yeah he was big on facetime he loved he, loved he was FaceTime. so good at that oh my gosh like um you know one thing that's like a good example like I, that i've never i've never i'm never going to be like that good like that with him like he was always keep really good at keeping in contact with old friends of his like people that he had met when he was in treatment and like he was constantly keeping like in contact with like fishing buddies like how are you doing asking them how they were doing and uh, I guess I, with myself, I guess I'm a little bit more selfish. I just like I have a, I keep my, um, you know, I keep like the, a lot of the people I talk to just more tight. Maybe it's partly because, you know, losing people and you just, it's hard, you know, but um, even if like it was somebody that was just like a, you know, a loose acquaintance, like he would take the time out to check up on people. And like, especially if somebody was suffering, and he could see that on Facebook or Instagram. Like he was reaching out to them and like, hey, I'm here for you. He's just like he did for me, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, there were so many times that we would be together and we would find out about like a friend of his that wasn't doing good and he's like, let's go, let's go to him right now. And then he would call him and he'd be like, hey, we're, we're, we're on our way, where are you? Like send me an address. And they're like, what? Uh, you know, <laughs> really? And, you know, they're just like blown away because you know, like a lot, a lot of, <laughs> People burn bridges, but you know, like you couldn't really burn a bridge with him like that because he knew he, he knew what it was like. He'd been there, you know. He's an architect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was an architect of friendship. Yeah, strength, just like you say, strengthening him. Yeah, um, he did so much for our friendship, and it, it was it was really tough. Like our friendship definitely suffered the last like nine months before he passed, and I think that anybody who's listening um, can relate to what it's like to have a family member or friend that's been in addiction um, those relationships suffer greatly I mean sometimes like when you're the one that's trying to help them it, it gets to a point almost where 
you have to step away and step back and um, because you've tried so many things. Nick was never really the kind type to step back and step away. He was always pretty much like on the front line with a lot of people. Um, and But like our, our, our friendship suffered and it was hard for me to stay there with him on the front line at times. But like I was still there, me and Matt were both there and like, you know, before his flight to Nashville where he passed, uh, we were on speakerphone and we're like, Nick, don't go. Like, there was just a bad feeling that we had. Please don't go, Nick. Please don't go. He's like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And we're like, just don't go. Like, this doesn't feel right. You're flying out to Nashville on the 22nd of December, and we're supposed to fly out on the 26th out of Seattle. This isn't a good idea. He's like, I'm going to go over there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get, get straightened out. It's going to be fine. And I'm like, Matt says you could stay at his house with me. And Matt's like, who's that? <laughs> and I'm like, it's Nick. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 Nick, come on. <laughs> you know, but uh, I, I, I just, I, what happened happened. Um, it's, Bill, Bill's told me the exact conversation. He said he talked to him just before he went to yeah. Tennessee, and it was like, just please don't go. Yeah, it was, it was weird. Like, when you're so connected with somebody like that, like I said, like that camaraderie you have is unmatched. And, like, we became so much more connected, like, closer than, like, a lot of the friends I have at home that are, like, best friends. Like, there's just, you when you live with somebody, you know how they live. You know, like, all their quirks and everything. You can tell when something's wrong. And, yeah, Bill and I both knew. We had been talking, too. Bill was like, hey, have you talked to Nick? Have you tried to get him to not go on that flight? I'm like, yeah, man, I've tried everything. Me and Matt were talking to him. And we were trying. We knew, man. And it was like... You know, Bill had told me, like, when Nick was doing really well and Nick was helping me, like, he had said, like, man, I remember, Nick, I used to be worried about getting that phone call, and now I don't have to worry anymore. He said, I just want to thank you, you know. And and then when Bill brought that up again, it was, I've never seen, like, Bill to me is, like, the toughest guy I know. And, like, to see him brought to tears over that, it, was, it just it really goes to show you how much, like, that friendship meant to him, you know. Um, yeah. How, what, how do we segue after that? Oh, I gosh. <laughs> I don't know. Well, what I would say is, like, to segue from that is, I would say, I would tell, one, you know, the silver lining and everything, um, you know, and I would say that when he passed away, the amount of messages that I got from people that said that he helped them was amazing. And then there's even, you know, then I started, I didn't really want to um, be too active on social media and, like, talk about it too much. It's just not the way I grieve. Some people, uh, that's how it's, everybody grieves differently. And, like, I went through a lot of different stages. But uh, I'd say, like, you know, after at first being sad and then being really angry at him, uh, and then my next stage was, like, how can we help somebody from this lesson and because of his death I think that there's I know that there's multiple people that have written me that have said hey when Nick died that's the reason why I got so like I got that message a lot for months after he passed away and um, you know as people were seeing how much it devastated the fishing community how much it devastated us and they looked up to him already like as their hero much like he was mine you know but more from a distance. And I would say that like, you know, he helped so many people when he was alive 
and living right, but even in his debt, I would say he helps tenfold like more people. Um, so like his legacy, like although like that is not the way we ever wanted to see our brother go, like I think there's a lot of people still breathing today because of that passing. I truly believe that. Normally when we get to the final portion of an episode, I always ask, what would you suggest for young folks trying to get in the industry? But I'm going to ask for two things, that question, mm -hmm. but I know you're passionate about recovery. Yeah. Um, so the second question to follow up with that would be, what do you suggest for someone trying to get into recovery? Um, somebody trying to get into recovery. Well, I would say that there's 12-step programs everywhere uh, around where people live. I mean, there's even 12-step programs in little villages in Alaska, you know? Uh, so, like, I've heard the excuse from people that, oh, I don't have a meeting near me, but, like, there's always some sort of meeting that you can go to and support system. Um, it's probably going to, uh, you're going to have to get outside of yourself and get uncomfortable. But how, how comfortable is it really being in active addiction? It's terrible. Right? And you got to get to, I mean, you don't necessarily need to be at a rock bottom, like financially or physically, but like mentally, you just got to get to a point where you've had enough. Because if you come to that conclusion, you know, you, you might get to a point where your body has, has enough before mentally you've had enough, you know? And, and, and then you pass on and, and there's no going back from that. So um, I would just say that uh, when, when finding maybe a 12, some sort of 12-step program, there's Celebrate Recovery, AA and A, and you know, it, different ones work for different people. I'm not gonna say there's like one that's the right one. Um, they, I've seen so many people be successful in all different ones. Um, but when you walk into those meetings, like you're walking into a place where people have literally been exactly where you are, and and what you need to do is take suggestions and put your ego on the private side, because I think pride is one of the number one killers when it comes to addiction. You know, pride and ego. Um, so that's just that's that's like my biggest that's my biggest thing. And I'll, and I'll tell you right now, like I've been I'm not a perfect like. I'm a, a perfect soldier for recovery. Like I've, I've fallen down and gotten up so many times. Um, and for me personally, somebody that has like been in active addiction, there's something that happens, I think, in your brain. Like once you've become reliant on, on substances that kind of is, has a hard time from changing if you're gonna try to like, oh, if you think, oh, I'm cured now, now I can drink again or now I can smoke weed again or whatever. There's something that happens with those of us that, like, that have had those struggles where we can't just just go back in and assume everything's gonna be okay. Um, it's, I think that like continuing that work, because I think it's they say it's a spiritual malady. Like there's like some sort of spiritual sickness. So being able to work on spiritual principles consistently uh, and, and having like a sponsor a sponsor that you love like that's that's the biggest thing for me is matt and i have everything in common we both fish um you know both both on the show um you know uh kind of just cut from the same cloth and 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 i i love him to death like he, i think he's the funniest guy that i know and so i think that's really important when when finding a mentor 
is finding somebody that you really love and respect. And, and like, Nick was never my sponsor, but he was like a big mentor for me in recovery. And it's a big, he's the reason why I'm in it because I saw what he had. I respected him, loved him as a friend. And then, um, and then I'm still here, you know, even when I've fallen and I've gotten back up, um, Matt's there to pick me up and, and talk me through it. So I, I think that's, that's the biggest thing. It's just you have to take suggestions and put your pride and ego aside and, um, and be willing to have enough, just say I've had enough, you know. What about young guys getting in the industry? Oh gosh, well that's, that's a tough, tough one right now because the industry, gosh, I don't want to sound like an old timer, but industry ain't what it used to be anymore. <laughs> it's, uh, there was a lot more money in it when I first started. Uh, price of cod's pretty low right now. I know the price of the halibut and black cod isn't that good either. Um, and, you know, regardless of what the prices are for crab, the quotas are so small. Um, I would say that if somebody was going to join the industry right now, they got to know that they're going to be started out as a half share. And I'm telling you, even full shares are having hard times making their bills right now. These are guys that are getting full percentage. So my advice, honest advice, is if you want to do it, then don't expect to be handsomely paid right now. And if, if you, I mean, that's the main reason why people want to get into the fishing industry is because they heard about how money, how good the money is. It's really not amazing right now. I mean, salmon, for instance, like we had like record years and prices. And then this summer, we got a 50 cent base price from the canneries. I mean, it's not 100% their fault. There's, there's, there's a, you know, it's very complicated and, and why it was uh, 50 cents. There's a lot of factors in that, but... You know, I made a, a third of what I made uh, this summer, and uh, we had a really good summer. You know, we put in a lot of pounds. So I, I would say, like, the, if you have an expectation to make a lot of money, um, just don't don't get into it right now. Honestly, I'd say wait, wait a little bit. But if you have the passion to fish and you love fishing and you want to at least use these years to learn when the money's not super good, and then when the price jumps up again and quotas are back up, and you have the experience already, you could go that route too. But it's 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 a tough one. It's a, it's a tough one. I see guys getting, you know, disappointed. Uh, new guys coming in getting disappointed by checks like that I've met this year. And it's like, hey man, this is what you signed up for. This is the way the, st the state of the industry is in Alaska right now. It's tough. Um, well, Landon, thanks for taking the time. We've been trying to get this done for a couple of years yeah, now. A couple of years, so I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, any final words you want to end this off with? Gosh, um, I'd say like just another like reminder, like just don't forget, uh, don't forget about like what goals you have, like when you're coming up to do a job like this. Just uh, you know, keep keep all the, your loved ones as like your as your motivators and remember remember to when you get home like spend all your time with them because that that's what i do now like um i hang out with a few friends that are like family but like my my all my attention is to you know my loved ones my family um you know that's that's everything awesome all right man thanks yeah brother thank you for having me you bet
Thanks for listening to Galley Stories. We hope you like what the net brought in. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Whether you like it or not, we're not fishing for compliments. Look us up on Facebook and Twitter, too, and reach out to us at galleystories at gmail.com.